0: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will believeth in anything. (laughs) Or so the late, famous atheist, writer, speaker, Christopher Hitchens would say. And he's certainly not alone in that. Many people uh, say that the claims of Christianity are just foolish that we are simple-minded people, that we believe in a grown-up version of Santa Claus, we are unwarranted in our beliefs, they are irrational, they are for children, and we are just stupid people, we have been tricked. Have you ever wondered, though, if you've been tricked? I have, I mean, if I'm being honest, I have had those thoughts, because certainly, much of the claims of Christianity are are fantastical, they are so other, unlike things that we experience uh, in our normal lives. I, want, you know, I grew up in a Christian country, essentially. I mean, at least when I grew up, the majority of people believed things that, generally speaking, uh, represented in the Christian worldview or in Scripture. I certainly grew up in a Christian home. And so, of course, I had thoughts, like many of you I'm sure have had. What if I were born in another country, in another home, would I believe in something else? Have I been tricked? Have I been led astray? Is my hope in the resurrection, a ridiculous hope? Is it simply a myth that I have been tricked into believing or is it a realistic hope? And that is our topic for this morning, resurrection. Because that is the hope of Christians, not just that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, but that we too will be raised from the grave. That is our hope. Are we reasonable to have it? Richard Dawkins, to quote another famous atheist, bestseller, perhaps you've seen his book called The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins is a biologist by trade, and he says this, you can probably guess what he thinks, but (laughs) don't kid yourself that you're going to live again after you're dead, you're not. Make the most of the one life you've got. Live it to the full. You know who would agree with that assessment? The Apostle Paul, the one who wrote the passage of Scripture that we're going to read today, if you look in verse 33 of chapter 15, Paul says this. There's a big qualifier here, though. If the dead are not raised. Now, of course, Dawkins' assumption is that the dead are not raised. And Paul would agree. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. One of the things that I really love about Christianity is that it is an open and honest religion. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the Wizard of Oz, and of course at the end, the, the great Wizard of Oz goes to great lengths to do what? To hide who he really is. To keep that curtain tightly sealed so as no one would know his tricks of wizardry. Because if they were to look behind the curtain, they would realize that it is no great wizard. It is just a crafty and clever man. Well, that is not true with Christianity. It is, we have nothing to hide, open up the curtains, and let's see what we find. And here is a perfect example of what you would just say honesty, or even just intellectual honesty. Paul agrees with Richard Dawkins if the dead are not raised Live this life to its fullest. Throw off all restraints. Do all that you wish, regardless of the consequences. Make the most of every opportunity, serving yourself, because this is all there is. And Paul would agree with that, if the dead are not raised If you have 1 Corinthians opened in your Bibles and you're in chapter 15, look at that middle section beginning in verse 12 and look at what Paul says. The consequences of the resurrection if it is false or that resurrections do not happen. Look what he says in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, you need to know that he's writing this, if you're new to the church, or you've grown up and you're just unaware, Paul wrote this epistle, which is just a letter, to the church at a city, Corinth. Paul was instrumental in planting this church, meaning he went into that city as a missionary, preached the gospel. People believed in the gospel and they started gathering in the name of Jesus Christ and a church was formed. So they had been taught the resurrection of the dead. They had been taught that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, but there were some questions, some teaching going on within that church that was influencing the church and the teaching was the dead are not raised. And here's the great implication that Paul points out in verse 13. Not even Christ has been raised. Now, I want to ask you this. Have you heard this claim perhaps that relig- all religions are basically the same in the sense that they're, they're generally speaking good for people, meaning that even if religions aren't true, they're still good because they help people out. It's kind of like a crutch for their life. It gives them meaning, it gives them purpose, or it gives them comfort. And so religions, even if they're false, have some value because they're good. We gather together together. Afterwards, we'll celebrate Easter together. Some of us will go. Uh, our good friends, the Tanner we know, are having a, a lunch at their house, which you're all invited to, by the way. Seriously, how funny would it be if we all showed up and then just went on to where we were going normally? That would freak them out. Anyways, uh, but you know, we all gather, and so some might say, well, it's, it's good for all of these reasons. kind of serves as a social hub. It gives us comfort, friends, things to do, good teaching, Well, here's what Paul's perspective is on religion, specifically Christianity. Look at this, verse 14, or verse, uh, excuse me, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. What does that mean? Meaningless, worthless. Your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19, which is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible to me. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what Paul thinks about the resurrection. It is the center of our faith, it is the foundation, and if it were to be taken away, all that we do is worthless. We are to be of all people in this life most pitied because we hoped in Christ. We lived a life by his teachings because of the promised inheritance that awaits those who faithfully follow God. If it is true that the dead aren't raised, then Christ is not raised, and if Christ is not raised, we are all in our sins preaching is worthless. Our hope, our faith is worthless. It is meaningless. And then even more so than that, where he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, what is he talking about there? He's talking about not just those now presently Living under the delusion that God exists and that we will be resurrected because of our faith in Him and whatever suffering we might encounter for that belief. He's talking about what of those that have already died? What a wasted life. Worse, what if they died because they were followers of Jesus Christ? That was the very reason they perished. What about them? And I want us to consider something this morning about the source of this information. Paul, the one saying these things. Now, many of us forget, and perhaps if you're new to church, this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this, but but this, the Bible, is not one book, is it? It's a collection of writings. How many, by the way? Boom. Oh, no, 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 the young lady with the hand raised definitely gets to answer. Yes, ma'am. Boom! 66! Round of applause. Why are you not clapping? Come on now. That's, that's impressive. 66 different writings. Uh, it's split into two divisions. There's an older version, not version, there's an older section called the Old Testament, and how many books are in it? Uh, you didn't raise your hand, you little cheater. 39, and you cheated. You were in the first service. We don't know if you actually knew this or if you remember. Well, either way, you'd be a good student for remembering, so good job. All right, 39 in the Old Testament, and how many in the New? You can just do math at this point, point. 27, right? Uh, how many people wrote this? So there's 66 books in total. How many different writers were there? At least 40, a bunch, that's a fair answer, yes. At least 40, there's a book like Hebrews, for example, that we're not quite sure who the author was. And so there's at least 40, perhaps more. How many languages was, were these writings written in? Three. How long, over what time span was the Bible uh, written? 1,500 years. Is it all the same style of writing? No, there's poetry. I love the kids interacting. That's, man, spot on. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature. There are letters, like what we're reading right now. The book of 1 Corinthians was a letter that Paul wrote to the church that he helped found. There are books of history. There are many different genres seeking to communicate slightly different truths or even the same truth, but in a different way. So when you ever hear, for example, someone say, I just don't trust the Bible, you don't get to just take the whole thing and throw it out. You have to dismiss 66 different books for different reasons. And by the way, that's what historians do. And the book that we are reading right here, by the way, 1 Corinthians, is unchallenged in terms of dating and authenticity, which is something to say. When you can find historians that agree upon anything from ancient history, with consensus, regardless of religious background. I'm not talking about people that just write you know, commentaries, which by the way, there are atheists, New Testament scholars, who write commentaries about the Bible, by the way. But it's not just that we have a bunch of Christians that agree this. New Testament scholars and historians do not question who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, neither do they question when it was written. And that is amazing, as we'll dive into this a bit more. But consider the source of this claim here when Paul says that our faith is worthless if the resurrection didn't happen. Here's something we have to know about Paul. He, before he was a follower of Jesus Christ, many of you know this answer, who was Paul? Well, he he went by another name, he went by a name called Saul and if any of you are, are questioning, wait a minute, does that mean when you become a Christian you have to change your name? Yes, you do and we have a good Christian name for you Available for you should you convert. No, obviously, I'm joking. Um, That's just a unique example where Saul of Tarsus, after he converted to Christianity, had a different name that he went by. But he was Saul. And tell me about Saul. What was his profession? He was a killer of Christians. That actually technically wasn't his profession. Not his, that wasn't his job description. In the first century, you go to you know, monsters.com or whatever, that job search, Christian killer. Uh, no, uh, he was a uh, religious leader. He was an Israelite. He was a Jew. He called himself the Hebrew of Hebrew. With As regard to following the Old Testament, he said he did it perfectly. He was very zealous in his attempt to follow God. He was a respected, highly respected religious leader amongst the Jews. He was trained under arguably the most respected first century Jewish teacher, a man named Gamaliel. Paul was incredibly sophisticated and educated. He knew Greek Poetry. He knew other literature. He knew other sayings, as we see all throughout Scripture. He's always quoting something relevant from either poetry or, or wisdom literature that's not in the Old Testament. You might say he had it all. He had power. He had respect. But most importantly, that we have to understand about Paul, he already he had hope that he would be resurrected one day. Before Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ. He already thought he would be resurrected and live with God forevermore. So a great question that we have right from the start for us this morning. What on earth would cause Paul to leave all of that for Christianity for a belief that the fulfillment of his hope of resurrection came through Jesus Christ. Such to the fact he believed this so strongly that he was willing to stop being the persecutor and become the persecuted. What motivation would Paul have for this? Well, let us turn to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see what it is I'm going to begin reading in verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So we see this word gospel there, and what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Now he doesn't explain yet what this good news is, but here's what I want to point out. Even before we explain what the good news is, the significance and the importance of the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically chapter 15. Like I had mentioned earlier, I didn't give him any details to it, but no scholar disputes that Paul wrote this. There are other books of uh, that, but that Paul wrote, or that traditionally has been ascribed to Paul that some modern New Testament scholars will say, "No, nah, he probably didn't write that book for this reason or that. Of Paul's writings, there are some that are without question authentic. First Corinthians is one of them. Again, virtually nobody. Of course, you'll always find the kook, right? On the internet, you're always going to find somebody trying to make a name for themselves, espousing some ridiculous thing. Nobody of any worth anything disputes whether or not Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Neither do they dispute when he wrote it. How many of you have heard things like this? Well, okay, sure, Jesus lived. Maybe you've already watched one of those specials on CNN, the quest for the historical Jesus. Well, of course, aside from all of the, the bad stuff in that, one of the things they do affirm is what? Jesus lived. Okay, that's another thing that scholars don't dispute anymore, by the way. Jesus lived. That's in the category of historical bedrock. Nobody disputes that. But they'll say, well, he lived, but he was just a man and had good teachings. And this idea that he rose from the grave is legend. It it arose many, many, many years later. It wasn't what the first Christians believed in. It's a later edition, maybe as late as the third century. And of course, you'll just hear some skeptic go, yeah, Constantine did it. Constantine seems to be the problem for everything on the internet these days. But uh, is that the case? Is the belief that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, is it legend? Well, here's what we know already about the book of 1 Corinthians. It was written AD 55. He planted this church in AD 51. So this good news that he passed on to them at most comes 20 years after what? The crucifixion. That is a short period of time. Not enough time for legend to creep in. But when did Paul receive this teaching? That's another question for us to ask. That phrase there, I would remind you, brothers, uh, or excuse me, verse three, where he says now, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That phrase there, delivered and received, is a part of the Jewish tradition of rabbis passing on information. So what we have here is a very early indication of an oral tradition that Paul received, and passed on. And wouldn't it be cool if we knew what that was? Well, we do. He talks about it. Let me read it, and then I'll say one more thing about this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Go back to that first section. It seemed a bit redundant, didn't it? When it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It seems a bit redundant, right? Well, there's a point for that redundance. It goes in a short, long, short, long. This little section here, again, is recognized now by all, virtually all scholars, regardless if they're Christian or not, that what Paul is citing here is a pre-Pauline, meaning a teaching that came before Paul that was given in an oral fashion because it's easy to remember that he was buried in accordance with the scriptures, that he was, cru- that he was crucified, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Virtually no historians again, regardless of their religious background, deny that this is evidence of a pre-Pauline oral tradition, a church creed, essentially, about what the first followers were saying. And here's what's fascinating. Uh, years ago, there was this popular, uh, basically documentary called, the, and it was more than that, it was le- lectures and conferences called the Jesus Seminar. John Dominic Crossan's an atheist New Testament scholar. Uh, He, along with several others, including Gerd Ludeman, another atheist New Testament scholar, think that what we just read has its origins two to three years after the crucifixion. That is so early. There is no doubt that it is accurate, authentic uh, representation of what the early Christians believed. There was no time for legend to creep in. So why did they have this belief then? Paul is obviously confident that Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 20, after that great line in verse 19, if in us life we have hoped only in Christ we are of all the most pitied. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the grave. Why did he believe that? Why are we reasonable to believe in that? I think there's three things for us this morning. The scriptures speak of resurrection. People witnessed resurrection. In heaven, this is an interesting point that hopefully I don't run out of time for, heaven requires a bodily resurrection. Well, let's look at this again. Scriptures speak of it. When, there's this line here, you know, the, the repetition, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, what is he talking about? Paul is certainly not talking about the gospels. First Corinthians was written before the gospels. So when he says that Christ was died and buried and rose again in accordance with the scriptures, what is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Well, like I was telling you, no, um, well, let me just say this then. There was a dispute in Paul's time about whether or not the dead would be raised. Uh, and fair enough, because if you look at the Old Testament, there is no thou shalt be resurrected. So where did this idea come from that there will be resurrection? It's understandable at least why there was a division Amongst the religious leaders uh, and the Jewish religious leaders about resurrection. The Sadducees, for example, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. And again, it's at least understandable why there would be disagreement, because if you scan through the Old Testament, there's nothing that just plainly says the dead will be resurrected. But here's the thing so neither was the hope in Jesus resurrected a later legend edition. The belief in resurrection is an old belief. Here's how old it was. In Matthew chapter 22, the, fair, the Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus. Again, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how, <laughs> that's how I remember it. Well, I don't need to do it anymore, but that's how I remembered it at first. So Now you'll never forget that. And, and they wanted to trap Jesus. So they came up to Jesus and they said, um, I'm going to paraphrase this. You believe in the resurrection? Jesus says, yes. Now they want to show him the absurdity of his position. They say, okay, say there's a man and he's married and he dies and his brother marries the woman. And then he dies and his brother marries the woman. Then he dies and his brother marries the woman. But essentially, seven brothers all die having married this woman. You would think the fifth one would get a hint, don't marry this woman. But okay, so that's the, that's the setup. And you can see what they're trying to do because then their question is, okay, In the resurrection, who is the woman married to? And they're trying to set up Jesus. So, okay, wait a minute. So, Scripture forbids polygamy, but in heaven, there's gonna be polygamy? In the resurrection, there's gonna they're trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus first, he addresses it by saying, you've misunderstood the kingdom of God and the resurrection. I will not be like this, for they will neither be given in marriage nor will they be married. They will be like the angels. But then here's the thing, that's not the point. The point is, where did Jesus get this belief in resurrection? Because I understand that it's just hard to believe in resurrection because it's so different, right? I mean, it's just out there. There's nothing that we've experienced really like it, and just questions of what will I look like, where will I be, is it this floating, disembodied thing, you know, just kind of the nuts and the bolts of resurrection, which if the Sadducees were asking a legitimate question, which they weren't, that's kind of even what they're asking. It's so out there, and I, I question these sometimes, but here's one of the things that grounds me in belief in the resurrection. Jesus believed in resurrection and where did Jesus cite? Where did he cite for this belief? He cites Exodus, so old. Not even this later invention in Judaism or Christianity. It's from the very beginning. And the passage that he cites in Exodus 3.2 is God speaking to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not I was, I am. And what's significant about him saying, I am the God of these three people? Where are these three men? They are dead. So what is the conclusion Jesus makes off of that? And he says to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So I know this might not persuade if somebody in here that's a hardcore skeptic or atheist But one of the reasons why I believe in the resurrection, why my body will be resurrected because I'm a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, that I have placed my trust in him, one of the reasons I believe in resurrection is because Jesus believed in resurrection. And without even making a case for his his deity, the Son of God, I at least can uh, take confidence in his understanding of the Old Testament and Jesus believed in resurrection, and so then do I. And that's the point Paul is making, that all throughout the Old Testament, there were indications, there was scripture that said both that the the righteous would be resurrected, but that the Messiah himself would suffer and would die and himself would be resurrected. Isaiah 53 is probably one of those passages that Paul had in mind with this. But So why are we warranted in believing that Christ rose from the dead? One, the Bible tells me so. And I know that is not very apologetic, meaning it's not a good defense to a non-believer, but Christians, we need to make no apology about believing in the word of God. We have a lot of other reasons that we could go into this morning on why we are right to have trust in the scripture as the word of God. But one of the reasons I believe that I will be resurrected is simply because the word of God says so and Jesus Christ himself believed in it. But more than just the Bible tells me so, why should we have belief that we will be resurrected one day? And it's because of this. People saw Jesus Christ resurrected. That's no small thing, by the way. Again, remember, we're talking about eyewitness account here, and what we've already, what I've already shared with you is historians all agree that Paul is the best source for the eyewitness accounts of the raised Jesus Essentially, what they're saying is, in terms of the historical method, should you trust the eyewitness account of Paul, modern historians would say yes, and for good reason. Now, let's look at this again. This is what the claim is. Uh, He raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to me. So let's not even talk about the other appearances of people. Let's just talk about Paul, the witness, who is writing this. We asked this question before. What would cause Paul, a man who had it all, including hope, that he would be resurrected one day? What would cause him to exchange that for the belief in Jesus Christ, that in Christ alone is the fulfillment of his hope of the resurrection at the end, to be reunited and reconciled with God? What caused him to change his mind? What's the answer that we just read? He saw him. Who else saw him? Let's let's read this backwards. Who else saw him? James, who is James? He's also your brother too, isn't he? Yeah, yeah that's nice. Um, he was Jesus' technically his half-brother. Let me ask you this. What would it cause you to believe that your brother is the son of God? <laughs> yeah. It would have to be something in the category of resurrection, right? I mean, there's more to it than just that. But look at these last two people because I was asked this once where you talk about, somebody said, well, what are the sources Okay, you're talking about eyewitness account. Did did people write about this? Well, yes, we're looking at one right now. Paul is an example of somebody who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ and wrote about it. And then I had this guy ask me, well, okay, fine. Historians say it's a credible source, but are there any credible sources of non-believers that were witnesses to the resurrection? Because if he's a Christian, certainly he's gonna be biased. And I go, fair enough, but let me make sure I know what you're asking. Are you asking me is there anybody in the first century that saw Jesus risen, knew what that meant, and still did not become a follower of Jesus Christ? Because here's what we do have. We do have the testimony, the written testimony of somebody who was not a follower of Jesus Christ who saw him risen Which, if that is true, if that did happen, that's at least a very legitimate reason to start becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. But again, remember that's who Paul is. Paul has so much to lose here if the resurrection didn't happen. He has nothing to gain, humanly speaking, at all. He has nothing to gain if the resurrection is a myth, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the grave. Because what Paul understands here is if it's true that Jesus Christ did not raise from the grave, we look back to this, what does he say in verse 12? We have been found to be misrepresenting God. What is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, I'm a blasphemer. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the grave, I have spoken ill about who God is. I've attributed to God the works of something else, the works of Satan, perhaps. I am a blasphemer. If I'm a blasphemer, I'm now cut off. This isn't a little gamble for Paul. Everything is at stake for him here. There is no good reason a sane person would leave it all for something he knew was not true. And you might say, well, maybe Paul's insane. He's not insane. Nobody thinks that. For good reason. His writings are brilliant. Paul, especially in the Greek, is masterful writing. He was clearly not insane. So why would he throw it away? I mean, I think you would agree with this. We all know this to be true. People will not die for something they know to be false when they have nothing to gain. I imagine you would agree with that. And I'll say it again, give you a chance just to think about it and start playing out different scenarios as you're doing. <laughs> That's fine, you should do that. People will not die willingly for something they know to be false when they have nothing to gain. And you might be going, well, wait a minute. What about religious extremists today? You might go, well, what about you know, some of the Muslims that uh, suicide bombers or the Twin Towers? Aren't they doing the same thing? Well, here's a big difference, right? What would have to be true about Paul and the first century followers of Jesus Christ is that they are the ones that invented this fairy tale, and then were willing to die for it. All subsequent generations are in the category of we've been deceived, not that we know that it is false. We have been convinced, many of the religious extremists of our time are convinced that what they are doing is right because what they believe is true. What is different about Paul and the 12 and the 500 and whomever else he is mentioned here? What is different about them is they would have known this story was false. And then all of them were willing to die for the very story they made up. They had nothing to gain from this. And again, when we look at someone like Paul, Not is it that he didn't even have anything to gain. He had everything to lose. Quite frankly, when I have questions about does God exist, have I been tricked, the thing that anchors me is the rise of Christianity. It makes no sense, historically speaking, for Christianity to have arisen out of Judaism without the resurrection actually happening. It makes no sense. If you were just to take the three facts that I had presented you with today, and there are more than just these three, but we don't have time for that. But there are three facts that are in the category of historical bedrock, which means they are agreed upon by virtually every single scholar that has studied the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These three facts that we've talked about are that he died. Nobody disputes that he died. His closest followers believed to have experienced the risen Jesus. They believed it so strongly that they began very early preaching a message of his resurrection and our subsequent hope in it. And they believed it so strongly that they were willing to all, without exception, give their life for it. More than just his closest followers, the skeptic Paul converted, began preaching the exact same message, and he himself was willing to suffer for it and give his life for it. If you just take those three facts, which again are in the category of historical bedrock, which means they are so certain, they're so certain that we can build our understanding of the past upon it. The most reasonable conclusion to make just from those three is that Jesus Christ did raise from the grave. Now, what does that mean for us? The third thing that I want to point out as we are gonna wrap up our time here, and I'll wait. No worries, no judgment. I've got five kids. They all do that, and it's very distracting when they do that. Make sure you love them so they don't feel embarrassed afterwards. So what does this all mean? The last thing I want to point out about resurrection, heaven requires resurrection, And the reason I point this out is because, again, I know that the idea of resurrection is just weird to us sometimes. I was having some conversations with you all throughout the week, and just things like this came up. Yeah, I remember earlier growing up, or even, heck, last week, just thinking about the idea of resurrection, and it's just so different. Questions of where will I be? What will my body look like? How will this even happen? They're kind of like scary questions because they're so different that it puts doubt in our mind that, okay, well, maybe it's just not true. Well, here's something that I imagine you probably believe in, at least statistically speaking, the majority of people in the United States still believe in heaven. Fewer and fewer people believe in God and fewer and fewer people believe in heaven than 10 years ago, but still more people than not believe in heaven. And here's the interesting thing. You cannot inherit an imperishable kingdom with a perishable body. You need a resurrected body. And Paul points this out in verse 30. For time's sake, I'm not gonna be able to go into this in great detail. We can talk about this later on another day. But Paul brings up an anticipated question or a real question that was given to him in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This is probably not a legitimate question, but it's probably a question by some of those that are already denying it, and they're just trying to nuts and bolts this. How does this even work? And Paul's response in verse 36, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And then in verse 42, he makes the conclusion. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Spiritual doesn't mean immaterial. What it simply means is this resurrected body that he explains later in 2 Thessalonians in more detail. This resurrected body will be empowered and animated by the spirit of God. It will be a physical body as we have seen. He talks about Jesus Christ was the first fruits of this kind of resurrection. What kind of body did the disciples and Paul, what did they experience? What did they encounter? It was a physical body that ate, that they could touch, but it was not a perishable body. And what that means is that the physical world is not what empowers it and what animates it any longer. It is the very spirit of God. That is why this body will never die. And that is why there is resurrection. It is because of our promised inheritance. From the very beginning of time, God has promised his followers an everlasting kingdom, free of pain and free of sorrow. That kingdom awaits those who have placed their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ. The only way we will be able to inherit it is with an imperishable body, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul says in chapter 15. And the perishable, cannot inherit the imperishable. So that is why we will be resurrected. And with it comes such great hope. Knowing that this is not the end makes this Christian life worth living. Any pain and sorrow that we endure for in Christ's name is worth it because the dead are raised. All will be made right. Justice will be served. God will bring forth good from all of the brokenness and out of the ashes will arise something beautiful and it is because of this hope with a full-fledged smile or even just a smirk we can stare things like cancer in the face endure great loss with a bit of a smile or a smirk because we know this is not all that there is this is temporary, and it pales in comparison to that which we will have when we are resurrected and in the presence of God fully. Heaven awaits us, and because of that, we have strength for today. May that be your strength always. May you look to this day, may you remember resurrection day for the hope that it brings is what you need to get through all of the brokenness that is in this world. If you are a follower of Christ today, may that truth, may this morning remind you, may it empower you, may it sustain you, may it cause you to live like none other because even if you lose all that you have, all you have done is gained. For to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And if you have yet to turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, Know that your creator is a loving God. He is merciful. He is not vindictive, and he is not just sitting in his anger. He is waiting you with open arms. In mercy, he will receive you as a son or a daughter. So repent of your sins. Humble yourselves. And what does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? It starts by recognizing you are a sinner, And you ask the God whom you have sinned against for forgiveness. And then upon that confession, scripture tells us that our God forgives you without any prejudice. He gives you the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of the inheritance that is yet to come that we just spoke about. And then he gives you the church to help you walk in faith, being a follower of Jesus Christ. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Today can be the day that it begins, and we're glad to talk to you more about that. Musicians, you can come. We're gonna end our service by, uh, with communion. If you're new, what communion is, it's a, a practice of the Christian church that Jesus instituted the night before he was arrested, put on trial, and then crucified. Jesus had a meal with his disciples, and at this meal, he took bread and he took wine and he broke the bread and they drank the wine. And he said, whenever you gather in my name, do this. And the reason that we do it is because it is symbolic. It represents the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ, because of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us on the cross. And the juice represents the blood that was shed for us. And we eat of this because we remember that it is our hope. It is what sustains us. And we ask you and invite you to do that this morning after you've had a moment to reflect upon the word of God and respond to it appropriately. Uh, after coming and taking it, uh, we, will, we will finish a song. They're gonna start singing while you're doing that, so don't be distracted by that. Uh, and then we'll have some parting words. But may you respond in faith to the word of God as you have heard it this morning.